The parables of Jesus are among the most popular elements of the Bible. But what are the deeper stories behind them, and how do they relate to the modern day? Welcome to the Parables podcast series, produced by the Archdiocese of Brisbane. In this seven-part series, Archbishop Mark Coleridge takes us deeper into these stories. Thank you for joining us for the Parables Podcasts. So we continue our journey of exploration into the wonderful world of the parables of Jesus, keeping in mind that they are little narrative metaphors of the kingdom of God, which was at the heart of Jesus' teaching, And his purpose is to subvert conventional understandings of the kingdom of God in order to bring to birth new and brilliant perceptions and experiences of the kingdom of God. I want to turn to Luke chapter 10, where we find what's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, in some ways, it's not a classical parable, and at times it's called an exemplum, which is a Latin word that means example. But we can forget those kind of fine distinctions. For our purposes, it is a parable and it does have many of the features of the parables of Jesus. So I'm going to regard it as a parable. It's addressed to the Pharisees and it's always important to ask, to whom is Jesus speaking and why? So in this particular case, he is talking to the Pharisees. Now, a word about them, who they were. There are two things at least that you need to keep in mind to understand who the Pharisees were. The first is that the name means the separate ones. Pharisee comes from the Hebrew verb to separate. So they regarded themselves as separate or set apart in order to live a life of radical obedience to the law of God because in their judgment... The kingdom of God, its coming among us, was delayed because of disobedience. So if they wanted the kingdom of God to come, the way in which they could could ensure that was to be radically obedient to the law of God, that pathway of liberation that God had given as gift to his chosen people. So they were the separate ones, but separate in that sense of radical obedience to the law of God, In other words, living as a kind of counter-society of God in a world that was enslaving, they sought to follow a path of liberation. The second thing about the Pharisees to keep in mind as we explore this parable is that at the heart of Pharisaic or rabbinic culture, as it will become, was a whole culture of debate In other words, the biblical text lived by interpretation and therefore by debate. And therefore, if if the the play of interpretation and the, the cut and thrust of debate were ever to stop, then in a sense the text would die. So debate prompted questions and very often in Pharisaical rabbinic debate, A question was answered with a question. You you didn't answer a question with a statement. You answered with another question. And that's exactly what we find in chapter 10. Because this teacher of the law, this Pharisee, he asks a question. But who is my neighbour? Classic Pharisaical rabbinic debate. And towards the end of the parable, Jesus will ask his own question. 
which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who had fallen into the hands of the robbers? So question in reply to question. The question that the teacher of the law, God's law, asked is a thoroughly valid question. Who is my neighbour? And particularly for a Pharisee who had this strong sense of separation. Is my neighbour only one of my mob, another Pharisee or another Jew? So he asks Rabbi Jesus, who is my neighbour? So in that sense, it's classic rabbinic debate. I've said that the parables of Jesus begin in an ordinary world. And that's always the case. They don't take us into some kind of phantasmagoric fantasy land. They start in the ordinary, identifiable world of human beings. Now, here, the ordinariness is a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, down the hill from Jerusalem, through the Judean desert, onto the oasis at Jericho. It's not all that far, but it's quite a journey, and it would have been even more of a journey in Jesus' time, and a journey that many people would have undertaken. So it is the ordinary world of the journey from Jerusalem down the hill to the oasis at Jericho. But the ordinary world in which the parable starts is also the ordinary world of human violence that we know in every time and place. It's a world of violence in which there are no neighbours, therefore the question doesn't apply, who is my neighbour? In a violent world there are no neighbours. There are only uh, predators and those who are violated. So here we are in the ordinary human world and that's where the parable begins and where Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God takes root. We find a man whom we're told fell into the hands of robbers who would have infested this road from Jerusalem to Jericho and they stripped him of his clothing. Why? Because clothing was valuable. People in this culture didn't have a whole wardrobe full of clothes. They didn't open the cupboard in the morning and say, what will I wear today? They didn't have much of a, a choice. So therefore, clothing was valuable. And they strip him, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So what have you got? You've got a human body, stripped, lying in the ditch, as it were, so we don't know two things about him. We don't know whether he's alive or dead. We're told he's half dead. We know that. But those who pass by don't know that, and that will become vital. And we don't know whether he's one of us or one of the others because in this culture and still in many parts of the Middle East today, your ethnic identity is signalled by the clothing you wear. You can always pick a Druze in the Holy Land because of the way he or she dresses, for instance. So we don't know, or at least a passerby wouldn't know, whether the man is alive or dead and wouldn't know which ethnic or religious community the man belongs. And both of these will become massive problems for the priest and the Levite 
who are passing by, coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, why are they on their journey? They've been up in Jerusalem doing their service at the temple. That was their job. They were temple employees of one kind or another. And in order to do their work in the temple, they had to maintain ritual purity. And this was the problem. Because, you see, they couldn't take the risk when they see the guy in the ditch. They couldn't take the risk of him being dead. Because if they went too close, let alone touched a dead body, they were ritually unclean. And the whole process of restoring ritual purity was slow and expensive. Similarly, they couldn't take the risk that the man in the ditch was not one of us. Because again, that sense of separation, that if they went too close and touched someone who wasn't Jewish, they would be rendering themselves ritually impure. And at that point, they would be unable to do their job. And if they couldn't do their job in the temple, they couldn't feed their family. So that's the very real human problem that the priest and the Levite face. They can't take the risk because they have to feed their family. In the end, it's as simple and as basic as that. You see then that they are not bad people. I mean, we can be tempted to say, well, they were, they were heartless, cruel, uh, walking by on the other side of the road instead of going to help. But these are not bad people. They are presented to us by Jesus as good people in a bad system. And remember, he's speaking to a teacher of the law, one of the Pharisees. So good people in a bad system. And that's a theme that we will find in other parables of Jesus. Now, I've said that in each of the parables of Jesus, there is a moment where the ordinary turns extraordinary. That's the kingdom moment. So when does this parable turn extraordinary, turn strange? When does the kingdom of God begin to erupt in strange and subversive ways? That moment comes when we meet the Samaritan. Now, it's extraordinary that Jesus would present a Samaritan doing what the priest and the Levite were unable to do because of the bad system. Who were the Samaritans? The Samaritans were people who in about 720 BC were brought by the Assyrian Empire who had conquered Samaria, that area in the hill country north of Jerusalem, had been conquered by Assyria and Assyria had destroyed what was called the Northern Kingdom with its ten tribes and had a policy of transporting conquered peoples from one part of the empire to another in order to subvert local loyalties and create a new kind of unity in the empire. So they brought 
pagan people from one part of the Assyrian Empire and they planted them in that hill country north of Jerusalem, Samaria as it's called, and those ring-ins or usurpers who stole the land, as it were, became the Samaritans who were hated by the Jews. The Jews regarded them as usurping their land, usurping their religion, because they took on an older form of Judaism. They were kind of half-Jews, neither one thing nor the other, but they were hated and Jews, particularly Pharisees, could have nothing to do with the poor old Samaritans. So when Jesus says a Samaritan passes by and does what the priest and the Levite, Jewish priest, Jewish Levite, can't do, don't do, the, the, the whole story turns very strange. And this would have been shocking to the ears of those to whom the parable was first spoken. So that's the first thing that is genuinely strange about this story. But there's more. The response of the Samaritan, who is somehow free of the bad system, he's an outsider, outside the system, but finds a liberation in that, his response embodies the extravagance of the kingdom of God that, again, you often find in these parables. The extravagance of God. Because what does he do? We're told that he, well, first of all, goes over to the, to the corpse, or he, what might be the corpse, to the man lying in the ditch. And then we're, say, we're told... Moved with pity, he goes to him, bandages his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. So far, fine, but then the plot thickens. He put him on his own animal, probably a donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now this is going way beyond the call of human duty or human compassion even. The next day, seems he stayed overnight, we're told he took out two denarii. So he's opened his wallet, gave them to the innkeeper and said, you take care of him and when I come back, I'll repay you whatever more you spend. So he's prepared to fork out more. So you see the extravagance of it. He doesn't just go the extra mile. He goes the extra 10 miles in an extravagant response, which is one-way traffic. See, what's the Samaritan supposed to get in return? The answer is nothing. This is strictly one-way traffic. And in a world of two-way traffic, again, that is very strange and extravagant. It makes no sense. But for Jesus, the kingdom of God does not make sense in an old and ordinary world. The basic principle that underlay the world of two-way traffic was the Latin tag, 
Do ut des. I give to you in order that you give to me. In other words, human relations understood as a kind of business transaction. It was two-way traffic. But time and again in the Gospels, and certainly in the Gospel of Luke, that we're reading now, it's one-way traffic. God gives to us, but in a sense expects nothing in return. It's not a business transaction. It's the free giving of love that simply gives for the sake of giving. I love because I love. I give to you because I give, not because I seek something in return. Pagan religion was based upon the logic of do ut des. I give so that I get something. I give something to the gods in order to get something from the gods. It's a kind of business transaction. But that's not the way it is with Jesus. That's not the way it is in the kingdom of God. So one-way traffic, an extravagant response from the least likely of human characters is the moment where the parable turns strange. Now Jesus asks his question at precisely that point. Having shocked his listener, his interlocutor, he poses the question in reply to the question. But it's a question which now shifts ground and asks the teacher of the law to answer his own question. Jesus doesn't have to give him the answer. He simply asks him to answer his own question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. And the answer comes from the teacher who is now the learner, the one who showed him mercy. So in other words, Jesus is redefining the relationship between teaching and learning. And this has relevance for the life of the church, particularly at a time like this. Because we have spoken over the centuries of the teaching church and the learning church. The teaching church is the Pope and the bishops and so on, those who are officially designated as teachers within the community of faith. And there is, of course, some truth in that. But what we are seeing in a very particular way now, and Pope Francis has been a major influence at this point, certainly in my own country of Australia, as we prepare for the Plenary Council, that the teachers also have to learn. The teachers also have to listen. And then we speak of the learning church, the lay people and so on, that they have to listen to the voice of the teachers. Yeah, that's true but they also have something to teach. So the distinction between teaching church and learning church is not what it was. It is being re redefined under the influence, I think, of the Holy Spirit. And you see the same kind of thing going on here, that the teacher of the law, who would have been officially qualified and designated as such, 
in listening to Jesus has to become a learner and the fact that he has listened and learned is shown in the answer that he gives. An answer, in fact, that goes to the very heart of the Old Testament, way beyond the bad system in which good people can feel imprisoned, the world of mercy. I've said that the parables of Jesus are essentially unfinished, and that's true of this particular parable. Jesus says to the teacher of the law, go and do likewise. What we don't know is how the teacher of the law responded to that command. There's a certain urgency about it. In other words, if you, if you are without mercy, no matter how radically obedient to the law of God you seek to be, you're a good person in a bad system. Any system without mercy, according to Jesus, is bad, however much it might look good. In fact, it's bad. So the, the teacher of the law is being summoned into a new world, out of the bad system, and into the world of mercy, which is the good system of God that Jesus calls the kingdom. So we don't know how the teacher of the law responded beyond this moment of encounter. But what we can know is how we respond. Because in fact, as we read or listen to the parable of the Good Samaritan, we ourselves become teachers of the law. The story's not once upon a time back there. The story's here and now, and this is your life. So the question is put as much to you or to me as it ever was to the teacher of the law. Do we go and do likewise or are we in some way, perhaps without even realising it, good people, that's rarely the question, but good people caught somehow in a bad system, in a world without mercy. Do we go and do likewise or what might it mean for me to go and do likewise? What might it mean for you? These are the kinds of questions that the parable in fact insists upon. And the parable can only be completed once those questions are answered in your life, my life, as in the life of the teacher of the law. There is another point where the parable is unfinished. And this is where it moves from the personal to the social, from personal responsibility to social responsibility. What we see in the Good Samaritan is a man who acts and acts with profound and powerful compassion towards a human being in need. doesn't matter who he is, what ethnic or religious community he belongs to, whether he's alive or dead, none of that matters. What matters for the Samaritan is that this is a human being in desperate need. So that's the criterion, the human criterion. All the other stuff is bad system. But the question is this, is it enough simply to act in that way, personally, out of compassion? It's a magnificent thing, but is it enough? 
Does the command of Jesus, go and do likewise, also imply the move, as it were, from action to advocacy? By which I mean, does the teacher of the law, or do we, have to do something to make the road from Jerusalem to Jericho safe so that people aren't going to be attacked and bashed and robbed on their way down from Jerusalem to Jericho, wherever the road to Jerusalem to Jericho may be. In other words, does the command of Jesus urge us to tackle the roots of violence, which in the world that Jesus knew were often tied to poverty and injustice? Why did people become robbers? Is an important question. Why do they become robbers now? There are perhaps many answers to that question. But some of those answers may well be tied to poverty and injustice. So, only we can answer the questions that the parable poses. Only we can, in that sense, finish the essentially unfinished parable of Jesus, which looks to both personal responsibility all of us becoming good Samaritans, all of us therefore entering the world of mercy and leaving behind the bad system, but also working in whatever way possible to ensure that bad systems give way to good systems, even the good system that Jesus calls the kingdom of God. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Parables podcast series. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow the Archdiocese of Brisbane on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube, or subscribe for more podcasts on iTunes or Spotify.